Good morning. Morning. Let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and for your goodness and for your faithfulness. And we ask that your spirit will join us. Give us hearts that just are so in love with you that we are able to be so effective in, in living your love and truth out that others can see uh, the difference in, in how your principles work than the principles of the world and that the world can be lighted and you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. All right. Uh, a couple of announcements. Uh, we are still doing our sharing campaign in the month of June. We are giving away Could It Be This Simple? And if you have a U.S. postal address and haven't requested these this month, go to our website and go to the store, order them, and we will get them shipped to you. We have some of the English, and I actually found some a few remnants of the Spanish. If you know anybody that needs the Spanish, there's a box of Spanish over there, so you can, if you're in, don't ask for the Spanish Online, we don't have any to mail. I just found a few remnants in my garage for those here locally. But we have the English. So, And then keep us in prayer regarding the future of our, of our ministry. We're still looking at a facility, and hopefully we will be transitioning if things work out to a facility sometime in the future. If it comes through, I'll, I'll make detailed announcements. But just keep us in prayer about that. We, we've got something we're looking at very intensely at the moment. We're doing Lesson 13 of the Promise, God's Everlasting Covenant, and the title is The New Covenant Life, and the memory text is from John 10.10, and Jesus speaking, and I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Think that through, life more abundantly. Is there life without God? No. No, there's not. Is there death with God? No. Get your mind around that. There's not. If you're united with God... No death. If you're alienated from God, no life. John 17, 3, this is life eternal. They might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ who now is sent. Understand, God is the source of life. He is the originator of all life. And only in union with him do we have life. But Satan has the power of death, according to Scripture. What's his power? The power of death. Well, if life is... Knowing or being united with God, what would then cause death? Separation, Separation God. So how, what's Satan's power then? Separation. He, he, by, by doing what, though? Lies. lies. There you go. Lies believe, break the circle of love and justice. He's the father of lies. As we believe lies about God, we turn our hearts away from him, and we disconnect ourselves from him. And that ultimately is why people will die in the end, because they're disconnected from the source of life. What does the abundant life mean, though? Is it speaking about chronological length of years? The abundant, you have lots of it, lots and lots of life. You live for eons and eons and eons and eons, it's abundant. We'll have a fuller life here on earth. Fuller life? Maybe it's the quality of life. Quality of life? I was going to say, for those who think it might be a, the, just the, the quality of time, I mean, the length of time, uh, for those who believe in an eternal burning hell, they also live for all eternity. Do they have an abundant life? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you see that that's not quite what's been meant here. So how do we experience abundant life? Can you have abundant living while violating God's design laws for life? I, I, I could say, can you have abundant life, vibrant life, healthy life while violating the laws of health? No, you can't. Can you have abundant living without freedom? No. As a POW? As a prisoner, as a slave, how about a slave to sin? Can you have abundant living? Can you have abundant life without physical health or mental health? 
In the middle of the second paragraph, the lesson states, the Lord cares about our lives now. He wants best for what's best for us now. So, I agree with that. You agree with that? Do we always receive what is best for us here and now? Pause before you answer. I got a warning. I want to tell you, warning, this is a trick question. <laughs> Do we always receive? Well, it depends on where you're focusing your, your answer on the way the question's worded. Do we always receive from God what is best for us? Yes. Yes. Yes, yes we do. God always does in governance of God what is best for us. But God's choices are impacted by our choices. So sometimes we experience things in life that are not best for us because we chose to do it our way for a while rather than God's way. But God continues to, wherever he finds us, work what's best for us. From that point, moving us back into harmony with his plan, designs, and laws. Also, God is not the only actor impacting our lives. There are other intelligences working on us, other free beings making choices that impact us as well. So not everything that happens to us is directly from God, but everything God does is good for us. So that's why it says in Romans, we, uh, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. So God is always working for our good. Consider these two quotes, see if you like them. Uh, one is counsels uh, to the church, page 345. God is too wise to err and too good to withhold any good thing from his saints who walk uprightly. Man is erring, and although his petitions are sent up from an honest heart, he does not always ask for the things that are good for him. Have you ever asked for something that really wasn't good for you? Yeah, later. For, yeah, I have too. Uh, good for himself. And that will glorify God. When this is so, our wise and good father hears our prayers and will answer sometimes immediately, but he gives us the things that are for our best good and his own glory. God gives us blessings. If we could look into his plan, we would clearly see that he knows what is best for us and that our prayers are answered. Nothing hurtful is given but the blessing we need. In the place of something we asked for would would not uh in place of something we asked for that would not be good for us, but to our hurt. So he gives us what we need, not necessarily what we ask for. And then I like this one. This one I've found a lot of comfort in over the years. It's out of a book called Desire of Ages, two twenty four. God never leads his children otherwise than they would choose to be led if they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose which they are fulfilling as co-workers with him. And then it goes on to say at the end of that, it, it, it talks about Elijah and Enoch were not more glorified or honored than John the Baptist who died being beheaded. And then it goes on to say, uh, and of all the gifts that heaven can bestow upon men, think about a gift if you're asking, Lord, bestow your gifts upon me. Bestow heavenly gifts on me. According to this author, of all the gifts that heaven can bestow upon men, fellowship with Christ in his suffering is the most weighty trust and highest honor. Okay, keep a few of those gifts, Lord. <laughs> Don't want all the gifts. <laughs> Don't want necessarily the very best gift, the highest gift. Give me the second highest gift. <laughs> but yeah, if you understand the meaning of that. Just let, let you meditate on that on your own. The second paragraph of the lesson states uh, about the covenant. It says, the covenant is not some deal where you do this and this and this, and then as long a long way off, you will get your reward. The rewards, the gifts, they are blessings that those who, by faith, enter into the covenant relationship can enjoy here and now. 
So are they saying if you do this and this and this, you get your blessing now, not sometime off in the future, but you got to do this and this and this. <laughs> Is that what they're saying? Uh, I wasn't quite sure how to read that. But I thought I'd ask. Um, but no, there are blessings that come. There really are. I, I, can you list some? That we get now. That we're promised now. That you can have 100% certainty you get now. Peace. Peace. Good one. Whoever said it, good. Comfort. Comfort, good. Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Okay, the presence of the Holy Spirit, good. Yeah, so how about a new heart and a right spirit? A mature character. Freedom from guilt and shame. And you guys said this, acceptance with God and peace of heart and mind. How about a sound mind? Self-control. Love that casts out all fear. Deepening friendship with and trust in Jesus. And if we practice applying God's methods, the development of discernment. Are these gifts that we can have now? Are we promised in the covenant relationship here and now that God will give us perfect health? Yeah. Suffer a freedom from all pain and and suffering and persecution. Yeah. Never experience any injustice. Yeah. Have health, wealth, fame, earthly success. Yeah. Get your mind around that. Much of there's a whole school of Christian thought that promises if you do the deal, you get the goods. And they're talking earthly goods. Pro- what God promises na- here and now is a better life is not what the health wellness gospel teaches. It's about a better heart, mind, character, maturity, wisdom, discernment. What God promises us now is for the honest, the dishonest to become honest, the selfish to become loving the disloyal to become loyal, the impulsive to become patient, the cruel to become kind, the vengeful to become forgiving, the hard-hearted to become merciful, the ungodly to become godly, the fearful to become courageous, and the wavering to become steadfast and reliable. This, These are the things we can experience now, isn't it? These are the promises. We are not promised new biology until the mortal puts on immortality at the second coming. That's when we get new biology. So you can have patients, and I have patients that suffer from various physiological, mental illnesses of various kinds, and those illnesses don't determine their character. Somebody with depression, depression doesn't determine whether a person is loyal to their spouse or, 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 or not, whether they're honest, whether they're cruel or, or, or kind. Character qualities are not determined by physiological illness. Many of my patients pray for, for healing, and, and God certainly sometimes does provide physical healing. But recognize, even if you get a physical healing from God, from some physical illness that you're suffering with today, you're still living in a body that is aging and is going to die in a, in a few short years. The, the healing that God has, the physical healing that God has in mind, his plan is to take away your decaying mortal body and give you an upgrade of an immortal body that never has an ache and pain again. And many, many miss the bigger picture. And this is why sometimes some of my patients who gets diagnosed with cancer, those cancer diagnoses end up being great blessings to them. 
Because prior to the cancer diagnosis, they were still terminal. They were aging. They were dying. They could die in a car wreck at any day. But they never thought about the eternal questions. The cancer diagnosis brought before them, hey, you know what? I'm going to die. And then suddenly, their whole perspective of their life changes. Everything shifts for them. The little trivial things that they were raging at their kids about because they had mismatched socks. They don't care about the mismatched socks. They just want to love the kids that day. Their whole quality of life changes. And so the physical ultimate healing that God has for us is the, is the healing when, when we're glorified at the second coming. But, the, but we don't get that glorification if we don't experience the healing of heart and mind here now. That's the promise we get now of the abundant life. Uh, Sunday's lesson asks us to read 1 John 1, 4. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. What is the difference between happiness and joy? From where do they come? How do you experience happiness and joy? Both happiness and joy are byproducts of something else. Sawdust is a byproduct of woodworking. Pain is a byproduct of injury. Guilt, shame, byproduct of sin. So happiness is a byproduct of healthiness in all domains of life. When you're unhealthy physically or mentally or emotionally or relationally or spiritually, it undermines your happiness. Happiness is a byproduct of healthiness. You can't simply say, I'm going to choose to be happy. If you're not happy, you should step back and go, where am I not as healthy as I could be? Is there anything I can do to improve my health? The most important is spiritual health, and then mental slash relational health. The least actual important is physical health. There are many people who have chronic physical illnesses that are healthy spiritually, healthy relationally, healthy psychologically, and even though they struggle with an illness, they are happy people. Now, they're, they're not as fully happy as they would be if they didn't have the illness, because they could do some more things in life, have more energy, more uh, less pain and other problems. But the physical illness alone, while it clouds some of the happiness, it doesn't necessarily destroy it if they're healthy in other domains. Does that make sense? But people really are never happy if they're spiritually unwell. If they're filled with guilt, shame, or psychologically unwell. I'm a loser. Nobody likes me. I can't do anything right. And they have all types of psychological unwellness. Or they're in chronic All of us will have acute relational difficulties, but chronic relational in a marriage where you're getting beaten regularly or you're constantly fighting every day and you you hate your spouse, your spouse hates you. It's, It's really not happiness in situations like that. Before you move on, it's important to note that the spiritual health is the only one that we have control over. No, um, psychological, your own thought processes and patterns. Yeah, but someone can have a a biologic chemical disorder that that impacts that. The spiritual one is the only one that the other party is dependable. Relational health is not dependable. We can have a hereditary physical issue. We can have a hereditary emotional, psychological issue. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. I guess I, I I tend to put the mental health problems that you just identified under the physical. That's a physical brain problem, the physical health problem. Fair enough. 
Okay, and, and to the degree that your brain is affected, then, of course, your, your thinking can be affected and so forth. There's no question about that. Um, but this is why, if you're not happy, um, to focus your attention on, well, what can I do to improve my health? And ultimately, this is why the Bible teaches happier those who keep God's law. Not who keeps a checklist of rules, but who live in harmony with the laws of health, the laws that life is built to operate upon. This brings, this brings health. So while we can't choose to be happy, we can choose to move ourselves in healthy directions, but many people are unhappy. Instead of pursuing healthiness, they pursue pleasure-seeking. They want to feel better, so they'll do something that makes them feel better right now, like get drunk, take drugs, gamble, have liaisons, at, uh, and so forth and so on, uh, risk-taking behavior, something to give a thrill to change the feeling. But most of those behaviors are actually violations of the laws of health or God's design laws for life, and they only bring more damage, and they end up undermining happiness over the course of time. So the only real pursuit. So happiness, byproduct of healthiness. Joy, though, is a, and we're talking about joy now. Have you made joy? Joy is a byproduct of living in, uh, using one's energies in harmony with God's purposes. God created humankind in his image and purposed that we should love one another. Should use our abilities to create, to develop, to advance, to discover, to grow, to invest our physical and mental selves in godly achievements. This is what we were created for, for purpose. Parents experience joy in procreation. Artists and musicians experience joy in pouring out their passion in beautiful works. Farmers experience joy in a bountiful harvest. Scientists and mathematicians experience joy in new discoveries. And we all experience the greatest joy when we love others, give of ourselves to help somebody else. This is the abundant life, health, happiness, and joy that we find in Christ, who, quote, for the joy set before him endured the cross. As time unfolds, every person that has capacity for decision-making will be faced with the choice of whether they want God's law written on their hearts or they want the law of sin and death written on their hearts. Every person will make a choice for or against Jesus Christ. Every person. And it's happening. It's setting up right now. Not in the evangelistic way, not in an altar call, not in a profession of faith, but in the reality sense that every person will choose what law they apply to their own practices, their own heart, their own life, and how they treat other people. Will you love others, present truth in love, but leave them free, sacrifice yourself, your resources to help others, to protect others, to shelter others, stand for truth even if the heavens fall? Or will you love self first? And will you withhold the truth? Will you spread falsehood? Will you coerce others? Will you support governments who will violate individual liberties, participate in the promulgation of lies, force, report people who don't comply with the government mandates? Refuse to shelter others to protect and help others. Well, you refuse to do that. In so doing, how you treat others, every person chooses Jesus or rejects Jesus. As Jesus said, Matthew twenty-five forty. Even if they don't know it's Jesus, like a jungle. As they said in Matthew twenty, Jesus said Matthew twenty-five forty. 
Inasmuch as you've done it unto the, one of the least of me, these, you have done it unto me. me. Everyone will choose for or against Jesus by how they treat others. And the methods they apply in treating others, God's methods or the methods of survival. The final deception is going to be so powerful that if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. The final deception will be about will be presented as, as, as a way to protect others, to save others. We must do this so that we can live. And that those who resist using and doing this, they're selfish. A teacher who refuses to call a little boy a girl or a little girl a boy is being selfish and cruel. And we must fire that teacher from their job. A young person who doesn't want to get an experimental medicine for a disease that has almost no chance of killing them, while the treatment has a higher chance of harming them, that young person is selfish and not concerned about who they might infect, and we must prohibit them from attending college. A world-renowned immunologist, highly respected and credentialed, who speaks out a warning of the dangers of giving experimental agents to people who have already recovered from a certain illness is censored for spreading dangerous medical information. We must silence him. Church members tell their fellow church members it is loving to coerce others to get into getting experimental treatments because we must save lives. Uh, they, they support actions to restrict liberties. Freedom of travel must be restricted. Commerce must be restricted. Assembly, speech, worship. If you don't get this experimental treatment, we must, we must use power of, of the state to stop you and coerce you because we love you. Every person is deciding for or against Jesus right now and how we treat others. Do we present the truth in love and leave people free? Do we justify in some twisted perversion of what is actually love the righteous use of force to make them do it our way because it's love? This is exactly how they burn people at the stakes in the dark ages. We must save their souls. They're, they're damned to hell. If we save, if we burn them, and even if they die, the priest gives them last rites, we can save their souls to heaven. Uh, we, we, we're, we're doing this because we love them. True followers of Christ won't comply with these methods. They'll speak the truth in love. Christ never has sought to silence his opposition by coercion, force, and might. The, 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 the representative of Jesus always wins by wielding the source, sword of truth. The sword of truth destroys lies. When you have truth on your side, you don't fear questions. You don't fear investigation. You don't fear inquiry. But if your position is not held on truth, you cannot tolerate the investigation. You must have some propagandist view of we are here to do good. And anybody who questions it, they're, they're not loving. They're not interested in your welfare. They're trying to hurt you. They're a conspiracy nut. You must make accusation. Remember, Satan is the father. He's the accuser. So we will accuse. We won't investigate. Monday's lesson, I'm just pointing out, we're living in perilous times. The final deception. I can't tell you how many Christian folk I've been interacting with online who absolutely have been duped into believing it's loving to coerce people. It's the law of worship. It's the God they worship. Good point. Monday's lesson, it uh, points, out the, uh, points us to Romans 8.1 where it says, 
Therefore, there is, no, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Why is there no condemnation? What kind of condemnation? From where does the condemnation come? Notice the text itself tells you the answer. There is now no condemnation because the text says, for those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What's described there? Is that a legal adjustment? There's no condemnation because they've got the legal payment made in the courts of heaven, and therefore their, their, their legal price has been paid, so they're legally not condemned. Is that what the text says? Or does it actually say something about their walk, their journey, the way they live? They're not condemned because they, ha- they live by the Spirit now, meaning they've been reborn. They have the law written on the heart and mind. When a building is condemned, why does the building get condemned? Because it's dilapidated and corrupt. We're talking about the objective real reasons, not the corrupt political reasons. I was going to say because it's self-evident. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's corrupt, okay. Just dilapidated, corrupt. But if the building is restored to, to per- perfect um, uh, restoration, then it's no longer condemned. This is what Paul is saying for those... In Christ, they are renewed, restored, healed, recreated, perfected by the indwelling spirit, which means they mature. They settled into the truth about God, so they love God and others, and they'd rather die than betray him. How does this happen? Paul tells us in the very next verse how it happens. Romans um, in Romans 8, 2. There's a typo in my notes. It should be Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ, Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. What are these laws he's referring to here? The law of the spirit of life in Christ made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit. The spirit is the spirit of? Truth and love. Truth and love. This is the law of love, truth and love. God's design law, written of the heart and mind. But the law of sin and death is the opposite of truth and love. Fear, selfishness, built on lies. So the survival drives that cuts us off from God. Paul's saying that when we have the law of God restored in our heart, the law of the spirit of truth and love, we die to selfishness and fear. And we have a new heart recreated by uh, the Holy Spirit that we have new motives. Then we live out God's principles. And so in Christ, those who have the law written on the heart and mind, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, free or slave, black or white. We live out the law of love and we see all human beings as children of God and we don't buy into the world's theories of racial division. We don't buy into that. We recognize the fraudulence in that. Skin color doesn't matter. Character matters. We are lovers of truth. We not only share the truth, we have minds that love the truth, but one of Satan's traps, folks, and I want you to hear this, is to get people to initially accept a lie, then speak the lie, act on the lie, and that lie becomes more ingrained into their own minds, their values, their beliefs, their sense of self, and it becomes harder for the truth to set them free. So why have so many good doctors believed a particular treatment is good when in reality 
the evidence is, it reveals it's harmful. You might think I'm talking about something in today's society. I was actually thinking about when germ theory, Pasteur and Lister presented their evidence on germs and, and infection. Did the medical community embrace that or did they resist it? The truth was not setting them free because they had practiced this other for so long. They didn't want to believe that they were doing wrong. They wanted to believe they were good people. They didn't want to believe they were injuring others. So they resisted the evidence that would suggest that what they have done for so long was harmful. It took overwhelming evidence over time to finally break through all of the lies that people had built in their own head up. How about... The getting doctors to abandon bleeding and leeching of people with fever. Again, resisted. How about tobacco smoke used to be prescribed by doctors for lung disease and was promoted as an invigorating agent. <laughs> it's true. Just less than 100 years ago. When the evidence started to come forward that tobacco causes cancer, was that met and well-received by the medical community or was it resisted? They didn't want to believe it. Why? If, you, if you've been prescribing cigarette smoke to many of your patients to help them have better lung function, and, and now the evidence was saying you've been killing your patients, you've been destroying their lungs, you've been causing cancer, would you want to believe that about yourself? No, it can't be true. It can't be true. I wouldn't do that. That's not me. Zyprexa. An antipsychotic medication marketed for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. When it came out of the market, Eli Lilly had its drug reps go to doctor's office and present the risks and side effects fraudulently, knowingly, purposely fraudulently, downplaying the weight gain and diabetes risks. So fraudulent were their activities that eventually they settled a multi-billion dollar lawsuit admitting that they had done so. But many doctors believe the lies oh, it, because they were presented by the company. And here's the, the charts and the graphs that show very low risk of weight gain, very low risk of diabetes and so forth. So they began prescribing. And then not only did they prescribe, they told others. And they went out and lectured and they educated students and residents and, 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 and on and on it went. And then when the evidence started to mount, observationally, the doctors were initially resistant to the evidence. Oh, I wouldn't. No, no, it can't be. No, no, that's just, that's anecdotal. That's not really happening. That's not happening. And in fact, it was happening. I I had a patient when the medicine first came out back in 1998. The medicine had come on the market a year or so before. And I prescribed the medicine to one patient. And that one patient, who was 19, 20 years of age, gained 100 pounds. I never started that medicine again. I had never seen that kind of weight gain in any of my patients, but that one patient, I felt horrible that he gained 100 pounds. It was just horrible. And I never used and I wouldn't believe them. They would come in and they would tell me, and years I'm going, I don't know, I saw it, I don't know. Yeah, but that's just one off. And they tried to persuade me and they tried to convince me. I never started it again. And sure enough, down the road, yep, what I saw was right. So why does this happen? Because once a lie is accepted and acted upon, a good-hearted person doesn't want to believe that they were duped. 
doesn't want uh, that they don't want to believe that that they didn't know better that they couldn't have figured it out that their actions actually harmed somebody so that means they doubled down on the lie no it can't that can't be true this is right and many good-hearted doctors today are part of a system promoting a fall uh, an intervention that is causing untold amount of harm the uh, the evidence is piling folks it, 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 you can only, it's like that, you can only hold back the, the damaging effects of cigarettes so long. The evidence of it. The evidence is coming out. And, and, and I've been, on, I've been saying this for a long time. And you should be able to know. And, and Karen asked me before the, well, how do people without medical training be able to tell this? By watching the methods employed. When people use methods that say, we won't allow open investigation, open discussion. When credentialed and, and well, historically well-respected people, published researchers and scientists come out and say words of caution. Wait a minute. I've seen this. I've got worries about this. I'm seeing patients with masses in their lungs after they've been smoking a while. Uh, that when people come out and say that they're seeing problems and the response is take down their page, remove their videos, Silence them, deplatform them, call them conspiracy nuts, don't investigate, don't ask questions. Those methods should alert you that something is wrong. Those are not the methods of a godly person. The truth, a, a healthy, and they're not even methods of a true scientist. Yes. A true scientist would go, hey, if you got a concern, let's, let's investigate it. Let's look at the evidence because ultimately it, it either is helpful or it's harmful. And the evidence will bear it out. Let's look at the evidence. So people who don't want to pursue the evidence and want to go on claims and proclamations, authority, this is exactly like the Dark Ages church. How did the Dark Ages church manage its power? Well, the Council of Trent has met and they have evaluated this and they have voted in committee that this is the answer and they're in positions of authority and you can't question. Well, the CDC board has met and they've, uh, and they've evaluated this and they've voted in committee and this is the answer and you can't question it. It's the same destructive assault on your minds. Understand, think, reason. God, God's methods always present truth and love, and every person is fully persuaded in their own mind because the evidence is compelling. Truth is compelling. So I've seen in, in my own circle good-hearted doctors participating in promulgating positions that are not supported by the evidence and resistant to data and evidence that would undermine the current position. They're resistant. They don't want to hear it. Same process that I just described happens in religion. Pastors and priests, resistance to advancing truth because they've taught or written or preached a certain viewpoint for years. And if, and if that viewpoint isn't right, they'll feel guilty for having uh, enslaved some mind into a distorted uh, doctrinal or belief system about God. So you see the same resistance. Only the lovers of the truth are, who, who love truth are the ones and have a humble heart and can acknowledge that they're finite beings. And this is the position of Come and Reason Ministries. We have, we've always taken the position that, that we're finite beings. 
that we don't know everything and that we want to love the truth and grow in the truth and advance in it as soon as our capacities are capable of discerning it. And so whatever we're teaching today, we might have to modify, change, give this up, replace it with that. That's, that's the whole journey that I've been on in my life. And we've always taken the position, I'm not here to tell any of you what to think. Don't believe because Dr. Jennings said it. If you decide to believe something because I presented it to you, you weighed it out for yourself, you looked at the evidence, you come to your own conclusion. That's why you believe. Not because, well, Jennings said it. That's a bad reason to believe anything. The lesson goes on to describe the case of a man who murders a woman and then is caught because he went to her grave feeling overwhelmed with guilt and asking out loud for this uh, deceased woman to forgive him. And they had a recording device and recorded it. And then the lesson goes on to say, of course, though none of us, we hope, has ever done anything as bad as what that young man did, we are all guilty. We have all done things we are ashamed of, things that uh, we wished we could undo but cannot. Thanks to Jesus and the blood of the new covenant, none of us have to live under the stigma of guilt. According to the text for today, there is, na- there is no condemnation against us. The ultimate judge counts us as not guilty, counts us as if we have not done the things that we feel guilty about. Did you? I heard the sighs. <sighs> Good. Good for you. Do you see? This is Fantasy Island. This is not reality. This is what you get when you hold a position that's based on falsehood. When you, you can't discern truth as long as you cling to lies. You have to be willing to give the lie up to understand and move forward in the truth. And the lesson authors continue to cling to the lie that God's law functions like human law. And that guilt is legal guilt. And condemnation is judicial condemnation. It's not. It's none of it. It is true that we've all done things for which we feel guilt, for which we feel regret, and things we cannot undo. But the question, why did we do those things? Did any person that you know, including yourself, ever choose to be a sinner? Yeah. We'll put it another way. Did any of you ever have a choice not to be a sinner? Did any of you ever have the choice Adam and Eve had in Eden to starting out as a sinless being who could actually make a choice to never participate in sin? Did any of you have that choice? Understand. Their complete premise is fraudulent. None of us start out guilty. We start out terminal. Dead in trespass and sin. We born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We start with a condition we never chose that without remedy results in symptoms, and the Bible calls those symptoms sins. And without remedy, we continue in those symptoms that makes our condition worse, hardening our heart, searing our conscience, warping our characters, eventually cutting ourselves permanently off from God, and we ultimately die from the condition. That's our position. So condemnation doesn't come because we are sinners. Condemnation comes... To all who refuse remedy. You remember the analogy, HIV infected man, woman, get together, have a baby born HIV infected, what did the baby do wrong? Nothing. Nothing. But the baby now is a condition that needs remedy. Without treatment, will have symptoms and ultimately result in death. The baby grows up, can understand their circumstance, offered a free remedy, won't take it. While they're not condemned for having the condition, they are condemned for refusing the remedy. And they will die, not from the doctor who offered them the remedy, they'll die from the unhealed condition. That's how reality works. So Oswald Chambers wrote, in my utmost for his highest, 
sin is something I am born with and cannot touch. Only God touches sin through redemption. It is through the cross of Christ that God redeemed the entire human race from the possibility of damnation through the heredity of sin. God nowhere holds a person responsible for having the heredity of sin and does not condemn anyone because of it. Condemnation comes when I realize that Jesus Christ came to deliver me from this heredity of sin, and yet I refuse to let him do so. From that moment, I begin to get the seal of damnation. This is condemnation, and, and he inserts, he's quoting now the Bible, John three nineteen. but he inserts, and the critical moment, back to the quote, That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Condemnation comes when you reject the light, when you reject the truth, when you reject the healing, when you reject the salvation. That results in the condemnation, not having the condition. This is why Paul meant when he wrote that the wicked perish because they refuse to love the truth and thus be saved. That's why. It is by accepting the truth that lies are dispelled. We're one back to trust. We open the heart. The spirit comes in and we are transformed The old goes away and the new comes. What about the idea that the ultimate judge counts us not guilty? Is that what happens? No, that's not what happens, folks. It's, again, a false legal perversion. Perversion. Perversion of reality. What happens is the ultimate judge judges us as healed or not. So consider King David, what happens when his name comes up and the devil, because this is what the devil does, he's the accuser, he will accuse David as a murderer and adulterer. What do you think happens uh, when the devil accuses? Does God say, well, let me see. Um, Yes, uh, right here, right in the book of 2 Samuel, David actually committed adultery and and, and murdered Uriah. Uh, uh, Oh my, uh, I, I thought David was a real friend of mine. Now, wait just a minute here. Uh, Hold on. Jesus, do you have anything to add here before I pass a verdict? And Jesus steps up to the Father and says, well, well, yes, Father, um, um, you're actually looking at the wrong book there. Uh, You're you're reading the Bible, and and, uh, here, take this book. It's the one I put my blood on. And uh, and please use this and relook up David. So the father grabs the the book and opens it up. And David, son of Jesse. Uh, okay, okay, here we are. David, son of Jesse. Oh, I see now. Born in Bethlehem of Mary, lived a sinless life, died on the cross. And the father turns to the heavenly court with a big smile and says, "Sorry for the confusion, folks. I, I had the wrong book there for a moment. Uh, King David uh, has a new record entered into the court, and in his actual life is erased from the records. And in its place, he is accredited uh, with the life of Jesus. And therefore, I find no evidence at all that David ever committed sin or was guilty of any sin. And I declare him not guilty. Amen. <laughs> is this what you believe happens? That's what they're teaching. It's exactly what they're teaching. It's corrupt, it's fraudulent, it's disgusting. Any thinking person would look at this, it's it's villainous. No, here's what actually happens. If you want to use a courtroom scene at all, if you want to use a courtroom scene at all, here's what happens. God looks at Satan and says, Satan, are you trying to pawn off your fake imposed law system as my, my, as the way my kingdom runs? No one here believes your lies anymore. Of course we all know the historic deeds of what David did, and those facts of history never change. What changed was David. He trusted me and received a new heart and right spirit, and the infection of fear and the selfishness has been purged. His spirit temple has been cleansed. He is now my friend, free from your lies and purified from your methods of selfishness. Your legal charges have no standing here. I rebuke you again. Next case. 
<laughs> That's what happens if you need a courtroom scene at all. How'd you like that? Don't buy into this penal legal corruption. It destroys minds. It incites fear. It's horrible. We are never declared by God not guilty. What we are declared, healed, restored, cleansed, perfected through Jesus Christ. But there's so many church entities who falsely pacify their uh, constituents saying, and not really holding out healing as an option. You can confess, you can be saved once you've said, I, I believe in Christ. Any number of ways that you can kind of convince people that they're fine just the way they are is a, is a win for Satan. And, you deny the person the actual healing that needs to be done. And that's what Paul talked about at the end of time, that they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. There's no power to heal lives in that false penal system. You just cover it over and you remain corrupt. Yeah, the the candy-coated rotten apple, that's right. So it is true that because of God's grace, because of living in a trust relationship with him, that God removes from our hearts and minds the guilt, shame, and fear that sin brings. But this is not a removal of legal guilt. It is the actual experiential guilt that we're relieved of and removed. Back to Sunday's lesson. In Sunday's lesson, uh, the last paragraph uh, says that Jesus has opened the way for us to enter into close relationship with the Lord. And uh, one result of this fellowship relationship is joy. Yes, he has. He's opened the way for us to enter into fellowship. The question I have for you is, what was blocking our way of fellowship with God? What was in the way? What was the obstacle? What, what, was, what was stopping us? Lies about God and anything else? The resulting fear. Fear? Our Our terminal condition, our carnal nature, our fear and selfishness. Exactly. So, what was needed then? He's opening the way. We're barricaded by, by, by lies, by fear, selfishness, or fallen state. In order to open that way, what has to happen? Truth. Truth. To spell lies, a changed heart, and a new nature. Yes, and a new nature. That's what we need. Jesus destroyed both the lies of the devil and the infection of fear and selfishness that obstruct our returning to intimacy with God. And another term to returning or reconciling or being united with God is justified. justified. Okay, I like that one. At atonement. At atonement. There you go. At one minute. That's right. Atonement. And so the Bible verses that we're re- referencing here would be, you notice, Christ destroyed three, three places at least. Maybe there's more I haven't picked up on, but at least these three, these are the things Christ destroyed. Hebrews 2.14, um, he took upon himself human flesh that by his uh, death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil. We've already explored that. He destroyed the lies of Satan. The truth will set you free. Destroyed the lies reveals the truth. Uh, next, uh, 2 Timothy 1.10 um, Jesus Christ has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. What causes death? We talked about that. Uh, 
the, the violation of God's design laws, the selfishness and fear that separate us from God, that comes from believing the lies, the, the motivation that operates out of harmony with God's principles for life, that, that disconnect us. He destroyed that. And then 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And what has the devil been working to achieve? A lot of different ways to say it. There you go. Bingo. Nailed it. To erase the image of God in man and put Satan's image in the temple where God's image should be. That's what he's been working to do. Set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God, as it says in Thessalonians. That's the spirit temple. And Satan and Jesus, the Son of God, appeared to destroy the devil's work, to destroy all remnants of satanic influence and, and evil and selfishness out of the hearts of human beings and to restore the image of God into the spirit temple. So, Pearl Harbor, one of the ways the Japanese confused us was by uh, putting out a lot of false information, a lot of chatter, so it would be hard to find the truth among all that chatter. And Satan's methods are exactly the same. How, how many falsehoods? It's like there's, you know, in golf, there's pits everywhere. You get out of one, you fall in another one, and so on. He has a lot of different lies. And to, people like will say, well, what is truth? My truth, <laughs> you know. Uh, they, they have a hard time finding truth because of the barrage of lies that face them. That's where we have to practice. Exercise our faculties and practice to develop discernment to tell the difference between truth and, and a lie. Uh, so in this idea of, of Christ destroying these barriers that keep us from intimacy or one with God, this was taught symbolically somewhere, theatrically somewhere. Where was it taught? And in, 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 in what? Any, anybody, any ideas? The veil in the sanctuary. That's exactly right. The veil in the sanctuary. The only part of the sanctuary system God's hand destroyed when Christ at the cross destroyed the lies, destroyed the carnal nature, and destroyed the infection of fear and selfishness and restored God's law back into the humanity. He he destroyed that barrier. So if you think about the sanctuary service, there were three general sections or compartments. There was the court. There was the holy place. There's the most holy place. The court is in the theater, symbolizes the world, the world at large. That's where the priests in their white robes would interact with the non-priest symbolically. We are priests that are believers. This is, we go out in the world as representatives of Christ interacting with the unbelievers in the world. And the goal in the courtyard, there was an activity happening there. The unbelievers were bringing sacrifice to the brazen altar. The brazen altar, uh, a altar made out of bronze, meaning a impure metal, two metals mixed together. So there's not a pure metal, impure. It's the unconverted heart. The heart that's filled with sin and selfishness and fear, but also the heart which the Holy Spirit's working on to woo and to convict and to draw, where God puts enmity between the woman and, and the serpent. So in that heart, we have a, a tug of war going on, and, and that person comes with the, with the sacrificial lamb representing the, the new life of Christ, and they're converted. So this is the witness of the church out in the world to bring people to Christ, so their hearts are converted. It's just a little theater. The, the, the holy place is a little compartment inside where everything is covered in gold. Gold is pure. It's a pure metal. It represents the righteousness of Christ. This is the church. And in the holy place you have the lampstand, which is the word. The word that was made flesh. 
The central spire on the lampstand, of course, is Jesus, which was solid gold and had six branches. Six represents humanity connected to Jesus, the seven, so we become perfected as we're connected to Christ. The oil represents the Holy Spirit, which flows into our hearts, and we begin to shine light into the world. This is, the, this is the lamp, the word of God that we take in, both written and living word. And then there was the showbread, 12 loaves, which represent the bread of heaven, which is Jesus. And then there was the golden altar. And the golden altar was the, represented the converted heart, where incense was burned, and we, we, the prayers of the saints go up before God. And every Sabbath, the daily priests in their white robes, the righteous of Christ, would join with the high priest representing Jesus and eat the bread, which represents the word, the living word into the heart, symbolic represent that the church comes together to ingest and partake of Christ every Sabbath. And then then these holy worshipers in the white robes have a love in their heart for God. They want to be more intimate with him. And in the compartment behind is the is where the uh, most holy place is. And that represents heaven, a, a universe reconciled to God. You have the box, and on the box is the lid, the hilasterion, which is made out of solid gold. That represents Christ, the unifying agent of the universe. And on the lid are the angels, represent the unfallen beings that are connected to Christ. The Shekinah glory of God above it with the photons of the light radiating down onto the lid, connected to the lid. And underneath is the, is the box, which represents the restored human beings who have in them the box covered in gold, three things that went in the manna which represents Jesus would partake of Christ and then when we do that our hearts are converted and then the law the law is written in the heart and mind we have the new principles of God put in and then Aaron's rod that budded we who are dead in trespass and sin come to life and bring forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness so the converted peoples of the world are represented in the box all things in heaven and earth reconciled to Christ at the cross symbolically represented so here we are though we want we want to be back there we want to be at one at one minute we want to go go but there's something in our way as we look back to see God more fully and unite with him there's a barrier it's a veil with angels on it and that's showing the the angel armies battling God's agencies working to help Satan's agencies working to obstruct but an angel can't open the way. They're helping us. They're assisting us. You see that in the book of Daniel when Gabriel comes to fight against the king, uh, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. With Darius, they're helping, but they can't open the way because the lies were not about angels. The lies were about God. Only one equal to God could destroy the lies about God, and Christ did. You see me, you've seen the Father. And thus he, and so he destroys the lies. And he took upon himself our nature and destroyed the infection of fear and selfishness, being tempted in every way, just like we are yet without sin. And at the cross, he killed the infection, restoring God's design law, and rose again in a perfected humanity. So a new and living way is now open, and the veil is rent, and we now have a way in. This is a metaphor. This is what was taught. It's beautiful stuff. And then I have a quote out of Review and Herald, February 13, 1894. See what you think of this quote. Christ said, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Satan has planted himself between God and man and seeks to intercept every ray of light that God would have come to man. Metaphorically, the Shekinah is trying to shine into the church, and there's a veil blocking the light. The veil blocking the light is Satan working with his lies and found counterfeit ideas of imperial law and church rules and all this stuff to try to obstruct the light coming from God into the church. 
Satan casts his awful shadow across the earth and envelops the human race in spiritual darkness. The holy place in the sanctuary, the church, would be in darkness except for the lampstand. Jesus, who is the light who lightens the world. And the door to the holy place was always open, so the light that not only enlightens the church shines out into the world. We are the light that lightens the world. But without that light, darkness covers the people, a gross darkness, the people. Through Jesus Christ, the Father is pleased to reveal his character to his chosen people. Questions about any of that? Do you see how our minds are being assaulted today in society? Being conditioned to accept declarations, proclamations, being told that if you love, you'll do things without question. It's really insidious, really insidious. Uh, Jump to Wednesday's lesson. I don't think we're going to get through this because we only have a few minutes left. It talks about, of course, we all die. But according to Jesus, the death is only a, a, a sleep, a temporary hiatus for those who believe in him. For those who believe in him will end in resurrection of life. One of the greatest areas of confusion in Christianity is the confusion about death, particularly that even in Adventist churches, they fail to differentiate first death from second death. And thus when they read first death experiences in the Old Testament, people consistently fail to understand that is not punishment for sin. Punishment for sin is the eternal separation from God, which, from which there's no resurrection. That's second death experience. People look at that flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, other places, uh, firstborn of Egypt, uh, Koradathan and Byram, and uh, the platoons that came to arrest Elijah, God's actions in various places, and, they'll, and, they, and they get confused because God, God isn't the source of death. Sin is the source of death. That's right. This isn't punishment for sin. In fact, God doesn't even call this death. God labels it something else. What's he label it? Sleep. Sleep. I don't believe God is the source of death at all. Never, ever. But this first death experience, as I understand how God's universe works, it is an artificial state of grace. It would not naturally exist if God wasn't intervening to cure the sin problem. Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, if he didn't commit himself to provide the remedy for eternal life for all who accept it, then all humans would die eternally. There would be no resurrection of any human being. God created an artificial bubble of reality where his life-giving glory is veiled from the planet and he is allowing the plan of salvation to be worked out, sending his son to provide remedy that we could not provide. And all those who trust in him have their hearts and minds healed, and they may sleep, as it says about Daniel in the grave, but they will rise in the resurrection of the righteous. The wicked, any wicked person who's died from any cause, is also sleeping in the grave. Whether they died in the flood, whether they died in Sodom and Gomorrah, whether they died the firstborn of Egypt, it doesn't matter how it happened. We call it death. God calls it sleep. It's still an artificial state of grace. I've had some of my patients come to recognize that when they've had loved ones with metastatic cancer in terrible bone pain that high doses of narcotics cannot relieve and they just almost have to put them in coma to keep them from screaming. And when those patients fall asleep in the Lord, the families are relieved in their rest. 
They understand that that's a state of grace, that that's not the end, that that person's coming back. What happens in many people, though, they can't differentiate the two, and they confuse God's actions in Old Testaments as inflicting punishments for sin. Not, not ever. It's always therapeutic interventions for keeping open the avenue for Messiah so that the race and the species can be saved. Linda? And then I was going to talk about whether Christ died the second death, but we're out of time, so it's... That you can close. You can close this out. Your comments. Like Isaiah fifty-seven one and two, the righteous perish, and no one ponders it in his heart. Devout men are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie at death. Beautiful. Beautiful. That's a perfect note. If you want to have, uh, explore the question of whether Christ died the second death or not, and uh, my, my view is that he did not die the sleep death, the first death. And he did not die the second death, from which there's no resurrection by definition. That is the second death, where his his death was completely different than either one of those for a different purpose. And I'll let you study that out. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you so much for your, your love and your truth and for sending Christ to destroy death and bring life and immortality to light. We ask that your spirit will be poured out upon us. Help us to have the wisdom and the discernment to see... Uh, your methods at work and to participate and to make the choice to love others and to practice your law in the way we treat others and not be duped by this false sentimentalism called, that some are pawning off as love into, into acting against your designs, but to actually have the courage to stand for, for what is true and to hold true to your methods and principles at this critical time in our history. We pray in your holy name. Amen.